Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Regular users of social media platforms are well aware that they often produce toxic discourse. Communications and political science scholars continue to produce results that bring clarity to the mechanisms by which digital and social media exacerbate partisan and identity-based conflict. A better understanding is crucial for keying in on what platforms should be held responsible for, devising better policy, and potentially designing solutions. A new peer-reviewed paper from Petter Tornberg, a researcher at the University of Amsterdam Institute for Social Science Research, contributes to this understanding by developing a computational model that, quote, suggests that digital media polarize through partisan sorting, creating a maelstrom in which more and more identities, beliefs, and cultural preferences become drawn into an all-encompassing societal division. I had the chance to speak with Tornberg about his paper this week. My name is uh, Petter Tornberg. Uh, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Amsterdam in geography, uh, and I'm also affiliated to uh, University of Neuchâtel in Switzerland. So tell me about your research practice. Uh, what have you worked on and what brought you to the subject of social media, digital media, and polarization? Sure. So I, I have a kind of uh, unusual background uh, to a certain degree because my, uh, my, my studies were actually in computer science and physics looking at complex systems, so kind of this dynamics of interaction is, and, and, and systems with a lot of agents. So that led me towards an interest in, in societal dynamics and, and understanding the uh, how feedback dynamics and uh, interaction between large number of agents and, and different systems can lead to unexpected outcomes. And I think social media is uh, a good example of that. And I think in particular, uh, polarization dynamics on social media is an, uh, a good example of that. It's uh, full of dynamics that is not necessarily in anyone's uh, interests or intentions, but uh, due to the sort of collective effect, it, it leads to certain macro level outcomes. Uh, so my, my approach is to to use uh, big data and data from from platforms uh, to study interaction using natural language processing and similar methods, uh, social network analysis, for instance, and then to try to capture these. Uh, certain mechanisms using uh, computer simulation. So basically, we, we know that people interact in a certain way. We know that uh, social identity has certain dynamics. So what happens when we create a system uh, with agents that are operating under that logic? What, what are the macro level outcomes? Uh, and so this paper uh, is an example of the latter, uh, which is based on, on a sort of a simulation to try to capture a certain mechanism. So the paper you're referencing is how digital media drive effective polarization through partisan sorting, uh, which appears in uh, uh, PNAS uh, just a couple of days ago, published uh, to their site. Can you tell me a little bit about what literatures you drew on for this paper? There's a mishmash of ideas here, and I see you sort of maybe breaking some new ground and the way that you're able to kind of combine some of these uh, with the simulations that you mentioned. Yeah, so so the literature that I'm to some degree speaking to, and, and most clearly for me, is maybe the opinion dynamics literature, which is a sort of physics-based literature and very mathematical, and and trying to understand, as I was saying, the sort of uh, how 
the micro interaction can lead to unexpected macro level outcomes. And so they're focused there for a long time on, on polarization and trying to understand how polarization can occur on a societal level on the basis of individual interaction. Uh, and in particular, this sort of question of if people normally, when they interact one-on-one, they tend to become closer in their opinions, uh, how can we get uh, polarization on the macro level or can we get polarization on the macro level? So that's that's been like kind of one mystery that's been central for that literature for, for decades. And so my answer to that is to uh, draw in this uh, literature on effective polarization, which is basically stating that we should maybe not focus so much on divergence of opinions, uh, but rather on social identity, that polarization is characterized not so much by you disagreeing a lot or having very different opinions, but rather by having a strong partisan identity that you really identify as on the basis of your uh, political affiliation. And in turn, it emphasizes that uh, the reason for partisan identities becoming strong is, has a lot to do with a sorting of different other types of identity under partisanship. Uh, so we you know, we have various different things that become uh, associated to our partisan identity. And this is something, uh, looking at the data that people have observed over time, that we feel more and more negatively uh, about partisans from the other side. Uh, and that that is linked to this, uh, the fact that nowadays, like maybe what car we drive, uh, if you know what car I drive, you you might know what party I vote for, you know, what sports uh, I watch, what football team I, I support, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that all of these things become uh, associated to politics. And so it's kind of a shift in, in perspective of understanding polarization to uh, what's been called an oil spill model, where more and more things become drawn in to the political conflict. Uh, rather than as a divergence in specific uh, opinions. Uh, and so that's really the shift that I bring to this literature. So, And then I, in turn, connect that to this question of the echo chamber and what impact digital media has actually had on our interaction spaces, so with whom we interact. So, so those are the kind of the three literatures that I bring together. And I come out with this uh, this finding that well, there's actually multiple findings I tried to speak to. I, in, in some ways, the paper speaks to all of these three literature, so making it a little bit hard to summarize. But <laughs> So let's speak uh, just to the echo chamber to some extent, because I think listeners to this podcast will no doubt be aware that uh, kind of the model or the thought around uh, selective exposure, echo chambers, et cetera, um, has you know come under significant scrutiny uh, in the last few years, and to some extent, uh, I'm, I don't suppose in all cases we can necessarily dismiss it. Um, but what you're saying here is that the evidence suggests that something uh, quite the contrary to uh, echo chambers is what's really at the core of the relationship between digital media and polarization. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think in this case, uh, this paper focuses on platforms such as Twitter, and Facebook, and so on, where most of the research has found that we don't have so much echo chambers, that uh, there is, in fact, quite a bit of interaction across the partisan divide. Uh, and this is also my research, uh, my previous research has also looked at this and and found that we we do have a lot of interaction across the partisan divide. But I think what's interesting there is also the this idea of underlying the notion of echo chamber is the sort of assumption of what the interaction consists of. And th- there is this idea that uh, what happens on social media would be 
something called rational deliberation, that we have uh, a sort of rational uh, exchange of arguments and we become more convinced by each other. And, and th this idea that we, if we get a lot of arguments on one side then we get more and more convinced towards that side and, and we get stronger and stronger opinions toward that direction. So it, it, it comes from, has various assumptions that I think in, in part from just my own use of social media, I, I would question that that is how I experience political discussions. But uh, also in my previous research, looking at the type of interaction that takes place between uh, across the partisan divide, uh, we don't actually see that it's uh, characterized so much by a sort of rational arguments or an intellectual debate, but uh, it seems more uh, like a sort of a conflictual kind of interaction. So that's what I'm interested in, that this paper, I, I don't necessarily deny that there are spaces with echo chambers. And actually, previous some of my previous research has focused on looking at, for instance, Stormfront, so this uh, neo-Nazi forum. And to some degree, that is very clearly uh, an echo chamber. But uh, also in that paper, I questioned the idea that that, that is what happens in echo chambers would be a sort of uh, collection of rational arguments in, in one direction. But uh, so, so the perspective I take instead is, is based on this identity perspective, this idea that we build up separate partisan identities. And what happens on platforms like Twitter is not that we become isolated from the other side, but rather there, that we uh, get thrown into a conflict which actually accelerates the uh, the, the polarization. Uh, we get more and more defined as separate groups. And I, I mean, this links also, also to this idea of, uh, of social cohesion. So it's uh, work by Koser and so on, uh, dating way back to the 50s, about what it means to have a, a stable society. So what does it mean to have a society that's not polarized? And to Koser, it doesn't mean that you don't have conflict. Every society contains conflict. Every society has differences between different groups. But the question is rather how those conflicts play out. So whether whether there's cross-cutting conflicts or not. Uh, and so basically, uh, in this, the way that he tells it is that if you have cross-cutting conflicts, then you get a sort of stable web of disagreement. So maybe you and I vote for different parties, but we support the same football team or we agree on certain issues and, and then we will at sometimes be on the same side. Uh, and so then it leads to us having a sort of interpersonal understanding, which means that the society as a whole becomes a sort of uh, stable patchwork of, of conflicts. I want to ask you a question about uh, race and how that sort of figures into your thinking on this. Um, you know, because when we think about polarization uh, or even affective polarization, I mean, race is a sort of concept that plays an important role in these identitarian concerns, et cetera. Um, and certainly we know, just as you just said, like not all polarization is bad. The civil rights movement in the United States, other uh, very just movements for social justice, racial justice around the world have been very polarizing in, in their societies. Uh, how do you think about that as a part of your thinking? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a very good point. And I think it's, it's an interesting, because uh, we, we tend to look back at the sort of 50s and 60s as, uh, as as less polarized eras or eras of more functional politics to a certain degree. Uh, but I think it's it's as as you race at the same time those were periods of uh, often race riots and and violence in the streets and it was to a certain degree uh, the reason that that mainstream politics in the U.S., for instance, uh, wasn't as polarized as it, is, as it is today, was that a lot of issues and a lot of existential issues weren't let into politics. 
So to a certain degree, I would say that uh, contemporary politics is an improvement that these issues are being raised. And of course, uh, the result is to a certain degree an intensified polarization uh, because we are discussing to some degree the, the rights uh, of certain people to, to be included and to be people and to be uh, given existential rights. So I completely agree that uh, to some degree there is a problem uh, in the discourse around contemporary polarization as being something uh, completely completely bad or completely problematic or, or just dreaming back to uh, uh, to the politics, uh, the golden age of the politics of the 50s and 60s, uh, because I, I think it's it's excluded that 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 was less polarized because it was based on exclusion. So the question is whether it's possible to organize a politics of today where those issues are brought in, but at the same time uh, doesn't lead to a sort of breakdown uh, of the cohesions of society. Uh, and I think in that case, looking around the world, I think that there are uh, societies other than the United States that have managed to construct political systems that are more capable of uh, containing uh, societal conflicts than the U.S. is. I'm sitting in Switzerland right now, and I think it, it's a good example of, of a society that uh, is capable of containing quite uh, large amounts of uh, diversity and, and conflict. One of the things I've kind of arrived at in my head, and I don't know if it's right, but it feels right to me, is the, the thought that certainly um, there are certain types of conflict that that very much need to play out. And civil rights and social justice, racial justice are conflicts that normatively, I, you know, I've chosen sides. I hope most of my listeners have. Um, and we need those conflicts to play out. But that to some extent, if the entire circumstance of the social discourse is affectively polarized uh, or, you know, kind of moving in that divisive uh, way, use the word uh, maelstrom. Um, you say uh, that digital media contributing to a maelstrom in which more and more identities, beliefs, cultural preferences have been drawn into all encompassing societal division. Uh, if that's the case, if that's what our situation is and the media ecosystem is contributing to that, I imagine that that actually hurts the chances that we might be able to have a quality and somehow successful dialogue on some of those existential issues. Yeah, no, I, I think that this is precisely true. I, the way I think about it is that the role of the political system should be to kind of channel these conflicts into a more uh, civilized or a more debate-based arena and to, to some degree disarm conflicts. And I think that's what we see in polarizing societies like the like the U.S. is that it kind of starts having the opposite effect as coming from kind of physics. I tend to think of it as sort of positive or negative feedback cycles uh, that we have ended up in a, in a situation where the political system isn't disarming or calming conflicts or somehow channeling them into something constructive, but quite the opposite. It's taking conflicts that you know, like masks, for instance, that weren't originally uh, somehow uh, intense conflicts, and then it, it manages to, to actually transform them into very unconstructive and very dangerous uh, conflicts. And so I think that, that that's the type of dynamics that we're seeing. Uh, and I, I do think that social media uh, is part of that landscape of uh, because of its emphasis on kind of engagement-based or attention economies, and because of these dynamics uh, where it's trying to highlight conflict and it, it's pushing people together from from uh, from the different parties and highlights the most conflictual and most strongest level of disagreements, then we see it feeding into this system where 
uh, where it's actually making these conflicts worse rather than better. You also point to, I mean, there are over a hundred references in the paper, uh, which folks would check out, but one that I spied in particular uh, is a paper called uh, Stewardship of Global Collective Behavior by a variety of researchers. I think almost a couple of dozen researchers, but the lead author is uh, Joe Bach Coleman, who was then at the University of Washington, now at Columbia. Um, I also found that paper fascinating for what it suggests about the uh, sort of research agenda that we should have around the role of digital media and society. Um, why did that paper in particular chime with you? And, you know, I get the sense that you're, you're interested in complex systems. You're interested in kind of, you know, these sort of underlying mathematical relationships. I don't know. What are you thinking there? Yeah. So I, complex systems is, is very much my, my background and sort of where I come from. Uh, and a lot of my work has actually been more on the sort of philosophy of complex systems and so on. So I think the paper, uh, it hits a mark for me in the sense that it uh, combines my interests of how I think about digital media and how I think about society as a complex system. Uh, and I think that it captures this the sense that I have that that we need to understand these media as um, social media is an example of a, of a mass interactive system. And often in case with, with those systems, it's very hard to uh, predict the outcomes that changes to local rules will have because uh, you have self-organization. You have this dynamics where small modifications on the local level can lead to uh, very unanticipated macro level outcomes. And so that is the type of perspective that I bring into trying to study this. And I don't necessarily think that, that anyone is trying to actually to create the situation, you know, like uh, it's not like uh, Twitter wants to create a, a polarized society that it's rather they're trying to uh, operate and they can modify rules on the sort of local interaction level. Uh, they can modify their algorithms uh, and they also don't know what outcomes this will have. So what, what that paper resonated with for me was this idea that of that we need to use computational methods to try to track this really long chains of causality that uh, are producing these unanticipated outcomes. So in some ways, the platforms themselves are a massive experiment on society, um, and we don't really know what the variables are, how they interact. Certainly, we no longer have a control. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly it, that we are really experimenting with forces that we do not fully understand. I think Hannah Arendt writes about this uh, very beautifully in the, uh, the human condition about how with the rising capacities of technology, we have attained the power to uh, to really change the world, but we don't understand our use of that power. And I think that, I mean, she spoke of the, of the nuclear bomb and, and so on, but uh, I think that it applies equally to the powers that we are we have in terms of creating communication and information ecosystems that are transforming the very conditions of our own existence. You mentioned that, to your mind, social platforms aren't setting out to produce polarization on purpose. Um, but let me just uh, query you in particular on Facebook, which you know to some extent has a kind of different record in the last couple of years on the question of polarization. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the writings of a senior executive there, uh, Nick Clegg, on this subject um, with statements that Martin Zuckerberg has made. Let me just read you something that Nick Clegg wrote in his Medium piece, You and the Algorithm, It Takes Two to Tango is the title of it. He has this section on polarization where he says, 
But even if you agree that Facebook's incentives do not support the deliberate promotion of extreme content, there is nonetheless a widespread perception that political and social polarization, especially in the United States, has grown because of the influence of social media. This has been the subject of swaths of serious academic research in recent years, the results of which are in truth mixed, with many studies suggesting that social media is not the primary driver of polarization after all, and that evidence of the filter bubble effect is thin at best. So I read that, uh, A, I point the listener to you know, Clegg's statements. He's made others about the role of uh, social media. There is, to some extent, this idea that you know, social media is a mirror to society, that the divisions were there before social media existed, which is certainly true, and that the evidence that it's exacerbating the situation is, is somewhat thin. On some level, your research, you know, bears out part of Clegg's argument, right? That the evidence of the filter bubble effect is thin. But would you agree with him, having done this paper, that uh, in fact, social media's role uh, in, in this particular effect in society is is negligible or, or still a question? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's two things there. So first, the question of whether the longstanding debate of whether social media is causing polarization or not. Uh, and I think to some degree, I think that there's quite some some evidence in a, in a lot of senses. And I think that we, I think most people have this sort of intuitive sense that it, it is the case. And uh, most researchers on, on radicalization and, and extremism do have the sense that this is the case, but it is a little bit like this old debate about whether television causes violence or not. We, we used to will never know how society would be without media, but we cannot really think of society and, and our media technologies as being separate. Uh, they're very much one of the um, part of the same system. So, so in that sense, uh, conclusive statement about whether it would or whether it does or does not is not possible to to answer completely scientifically. But I think that the, there is also an interesting kind of slip there that we often see in, in this discussions where he, he, Nick like raises the the fact that uh, there's limited evidence for uh, for echo chambers, and then draws from that the conclusion that that polarization and that social media does not cause polarization, uh, and we see uh, you often see that argument uh, playing out, uh, and it, of course it kind of misses a step because there might might be other mechanisms, uh, and indeed my paper suggests or show a very different mechanism uh, through which social media might uh, call, cause polarization, uh, which does fit the sort of evidence in terms of uh, the existence uh, that, uh, that echo chambers don't exist so much uh, in, on, on the mainstream platforms such as uh, Facebook. But And the interesting part there is also the sort of that the way that after the 2016 election, the way that Facebook responded uh, to the accusations of uh, polarization, uh, of Facebook causing polarization, uh, has been to try to to create uh, more interaction across the partisan divide. And I think it's something that we saw across multiple platforms. And of course, what my paper suggests is that that can have uh, precisely the opposite effect uh, of actually intensifying conflict uh, and intensifying polarization. You know, one of the things that uh, seems to me to be a consequence of the sort of identitarian behavior uh, that you describe is, in fact, misinformation that as a result of our prosecution of our identity on social media daily. And many people that I talk to literally feel like sometimes they're getting up and they're like suiting up for war on their phone, you know, particularly in intense political moments ahead of a debate or sorry, ahead of an election or what have you. And, you know, that kind of creates this sort of feedback loop in people's behavior where 
you know, maybe they are willing to hit retweet on something that is spurious or uh, that just asks questions or raises some complaint against the out party uh, in order to kind of, again, prosecute their identity. Um, do, do you see that relationship? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that there's a very strong link between polarization and, and misinformation. Uh, this is also a, a sort of argument that I worked on in, in previous papers. But coming from this idea that opinions, uh, facts, the, the entire sort of world of uh, narratives become linked to uh, who we are. So the sense of uh, that becomes part of an expression of, uh, of a belonging to a certain group. And as a result, the facts and the reality becomes maybe a little bit less important uh, in terms of what opinions we develop, what views of the world we develop. But there becomes a sort of sense in where uh, our perspective on the world uh, becomes drawn into just becoming another expression of our identity. And I think fake news is an example of that. And this is also something that I've seen in, in studying Stormfront, the neo-Nazi forum, uh, where I use uh, natural language processing and, and look at the sort of language use over time. Uh, and you see the sort of the sense that there's a co-production of a, of an identity of a, of a sense of we to, that is taking place through language and through storytelling. Of course, it's a neo-Nazi forum, so it, it becomes extra clear the sort of madness of it, right? But I I think a similar dynamics I can very much see playing out also in the political mainstream. And I think that there's also the sense that I've had uh, studying both extremist radical uh, radicalization and studying mainstream politics that uh, that the dynamics to certain degrees are are becoming more similar that we're seeing a sort of because radicalization researchers have long spoken about how uh, people become drawn into a certain identity and, and certain worldview and they they see everything from uh, from that angle and that the identity sort of takes over their life and it takes takes over how they see the world uh, and I, I think that we see a little bit of that starting to happen also in, in mainstream politics in certain ways, that radical politics and mainstream politics start to uh, a little bit obey, obey the same dynamics. And I think that that is something that is really quite worrying. You write about what you call the crystallization of conflicting identities and the intensification of polarization driven by a process in which sorting begets sorting and polarization begets polarization. Pretty vicious feedback loop. How, how do we get out of it? I mean, one of the things that occurs to me uh, in reading this paper and many others um, that we've discussed on this podcast, but also in other contexts, is that, you know, most of the sort of significant interventions that people are aware of or that the companies themselves have invested in that we're aware of are aimed at the sort of rational model. They're about fact checking. They're about provision of right information uh, ahead of elections. They're about labels. They're about, you know, other means to kind of intervene at that level. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to some extent you're saying, you know, maybe that's all well and good. It may have some efficacy, but it's not the underlying issue. No, I think that that's very much the case. And there have also been uh, quite some studies, uh, as you as you probably know, showing that the sort of uh, pointing out the actual facts uh, is not a very useful strategy uh, in terms of convincing someone who uh, uh, who has a, a more extreme opinion. It is operating, it's seeking to operate on the sort of rational level, trying to rationally convince someone who is not uh, engaged in a rational uh, conversation uh, because identity is, to a certain degree, a different realm and it operates in a different logic. And, and so, I mean, the question of what to do about it, I think, coming from a sort of social identity standpoint, 
know, there's the uh, the contact hypothesis, which uh, which has been a sort of dominant uh, theory for how how to reduce group polarization, uh, and so that's very focused on being brought together under common goals and so on. And so the the military, for instance, has been uh, uh, historically. Uh, an institution that was used as an example of, of something like that, where, for instance, between uh, black and white Americans, the uh, Second World War had a very strong effect on, on reducing uh, intergroup conflict. So there's always, you know, the, the examples that are being raised to reduce the type of group conflicts would be something like uh, a few years ago, the example that would most commonly come up is something like a global pandemic. But obviously that was apparently not uh, uh, efficacious uh, in, in reducing the polarization, and now we unfortunately get to see the effects of a war. But so, so basically, it's it's not very easy to see a, a sort of escape from the dynamics from within the system itself, because there is a tendency that anything you do uh, to try to address it becomes drawn into uh, to the dynamics itself, uh, and so that makes it very a very pernicious dynamics that becomes very difficult to escape. I can think of some prominent examples, you know, uh, look at the kind of, in this country, the continued argument over things like the way that the lab leak uh, hypothesis was moderated by the platforms or the way that the platforms in particular, Twitter and Facebook, uh, took some action against a New York Post URL concerning an article about Hunter Biden in advance of the 2020 election. You know, those were actions that were taken on some level, because the platforms believed that they were addressing a kind of, you know, rational information problem. And yet those actions themselves are pulled into the polarizing dynamic of the, the political discourse um, and have become totems, you know, certainly on, on the right here for, you know, why the entire kind of social media landscape is, is a sort of illegitimate playing field. Yeah, no, I, I think this this is, it's, it's very much the case. Also that Part of the polarization is this sort of sense that the mainstream institutions uh, have lost legitimacy, uh, that the political institutions have lost legitimacy. And of course, then it becomes very hard for those institutions, those same institutions to come in and, and try to uh, to calm down or uh, address the situations while being perceived as sort of uh, unbiased uh, outsiders to, to the conflict, which they clearly aren't. And I, I think that it's, it's really quite interesting in the way that polarization has made to a certain degree visible uh, things that have always been true in the sense that uh, that society, uh, that our societal institutions are implicated in our politics. They are actors and uh, and somehow, you know, media institutions have always had a powerful role in, in shaping societal discourse. But just to some ironic sense that this has become more visible through social media uh, by social media allowing the interaction and allowing the debate which which makes this uh, which brings this up you know like that traditional media uh, wouldn't have a debate around its own legitimacy but now social media does allow us to debate the legitimacy of the of the media platforms uh, that we are uh, participating in and so i think that that dynamics is it's is something new that i i think makes for a very difficult situation a maelstrom indeed, uh, and I assume that you'll continue to study this problem, uh, and hopefully we can figure out collectively how to chart a path forward. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, this paper is actually uh, part of a book that I'm writing, and as you know, the last chapter always has to uh, make some positive suggestions, so I guess that's what I'm working on right now. Thank you, sir.
That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest, thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.